back here with me, Seamus Harvey, on the Defund the Police podcast. Um, yeah, it's been a fucking fucked up week, but we had we had a few wins. Uh, it's looking like Seattle is getting rid of uh, half of their police's budget. That's well, that's pretty good. That's the definition of defund the police. And it is not just take that money and tell all those cops to fuck off, no matter how good that would make you feel. <laughs> it is to take that money and give it towards housing and human services and to support the community and to not support imprisoning the community. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's really a monumental thing. Um, you know, with New York dropping a billion dollars and LA's budget, I think 125,000, although I think that that's like a scam that they lied to the public or something. I have to read more about that. But anyway, none of that. Uh, super exciting. Very first, very first in-studio guest here on the Defund the Police podcast. Uh, this is a good friend of mine. He is another activist here in New Orleans. And he is a great person to talk to about how fucked our legal and prison systems are. So anyway, my good fr friend, Sinjin Sisa, welcome to Defund the Police. Thank you very much for having me. And we also, we have our first in-studio audience as well. Uh, our girlfriends who are lovely even when we are terrible. So thank you guys so much. Sinjin, welcome to Defund the Police. Hi. All right, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what your organization is working on? Well, the mission of the organization is to really support the betterment of people in the correctional population. And we do that through supporting uh, appeals cases of people on death row, uh, people who have life in prison without possibility of parole, through um, things, um, motions such as the Unanimous Jury Project to make um, the retroactivity of unanimous juries to um, all previous cases of 10-2 verdicts. So, okay, explain that. Uh, that I don't understand what the 10-2 verdict means. So the 10-2 verdict was um, uh, what was previously instilled in Louisiana, where it would only take 10 jurors to con convict somebody. Um, and for the death penalty? Um, it could be for... Um, most uh, um, criminal cases, um, and usually the the judge, um, uh, it's for death penalty. It goes into two processes. So the first process is whether if they're guilty or not. Second process is whether they should get uh, the death penalty or life. Man, so uh, there's a lot wrong with the prison system in our entire country. Um, a lot of it I knew, a lot of it I'm still learning, a lot of it I'm sure that you don't know, or maybe you do, but it's broken everywhere. But I was raised here, and since coming back, I have really, really found out that my home state has got some fucking broken shit going on it in, in the prison system here. Um, so there's currently, and I'm going to fuck this up and I'll turn it over to you for the the expert opinion, but correct me if I'm wrong, there's currently a U.S. military veteran who is serving life in prison in Louisiana and his 
the crime that sent him to life for prison is being in possession of like 0.69 grams of marijuana. Uh, just about, yeah, distributing 0.69 grams of marijuana, which is... That's like a, a joint. Yeah. yeah. He's, in, he's imprisoned for life in Louisiana for distributing a joint. He's also a Desert Storm veteran. Desert well. Storm veteran. T <laughs> Try to explain how that works. So, um, a lot of people are usually familiar with, like, the three strikes rule. Like, if it's, like, your third felony, you go away for life. However, in Louisiana, the criminalization of, like, marijuana used to be, like, it, it it's, used to be considered a felony. So, this was this person's, um, I believe, like, fourth or fifth felony. And he had, um, uh, an attorney who, throughout his whole court case, did not say one word, if, if I'm not mistaken. And also he had very little uh, mitigation in, in, into his like social history. And so he was just left up to the discretion of the criminal justice system in Louisiana. And unfortunately he had to pay the price for that. So let's, let's unpack everything that's completely fucked about this. And it, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. So, I started finding out how fucked up the prison system was because the, the first activism I did is I did a lot of homeless rights activism. I've started two homeless charities myself. Um, and the fact that permanent housing, especially in the South, average to permanently house somebody in this country is $11,000 a year. And we spend, on average, last time I checked, $89,000 a year for every prisoner that we put in. And my guess is inflation's probably driven that up. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, as of about five years ago, we were spending almost $90,000 a year. And that's, you know, that's your money. That's mm -hmm. our money. We're paying for that. It's not like the government's got a secret war chest that's not stolen tax money. Mm -hmm. um, that's fucking crazy. And here's a kicker, people. So what's the gentleman's name? His name is Derek Harris. Derek Harris. Desert War veteran, had a joint, going to prison for the rest of his life, in a state that has decriminalized marijuana. Now think about that. He's he's not terribly old, right? No. Like 40s? I believe he's in his, um, yeah, yeah, 40s or 50s yeah. right now. I, I want to say he's like mid-40s, mid but we'll, we'll totally look it up on the break. But say it's 50s, and say he's got another 20 years of life left that he's going to spend in a prison at $90,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So we're now picking up the tab for, you know, let's just round it up, say a cool million dollars for housing this person in one of the worst prison systems in the country. Just deplorable, you know, G Geneva Convention... <laughs> like war crime level accommodations uh, to the tune of a million dollars for a crime that is no longer a crime in the state. I can't, I, I, I can't, I, I can't put that together. Like what, what's, what's your organization's take on this? Uh, my organization's take is that we are now trying to help 
society see this person as a person this person that was like suffered when he came back home to a country that he fought for and loved and that treated him so poorly upon his arrival back that he had to turn into other other things to like try to survive in a place that wasn't built for him and i'm an army vet myself yeah and the civilized world's not really built for us because you go be uncivilized in the most raw way that you can and you know in there's a story i don't know if i've told it on this podcast before but my uh my uncle dewey was in world war ii and he had you know some ptsd like trauma from it but when when he was done in okinawa he had a three-month trip back to the united states on a slow-moving diesel destroyer with another you know 200 300 guys that had been through the exact same situation as him so they had three months to talk about the shit they saw um, when my father got injured in vietnam uh, he got stabbed in the stomach and left for dead but when when marine recon found him you know he was recouping in hawaii a week later they just you know medevaced him out when i got fucked up in afghanistan you know i was stateside in 72 hours i was back you know with my family around me three days later and then we, there's, there's no time to decompress there there's no time to think about what you what just happened to you and so that you know that's that's the other side of this story, which is that, you know, 43% of the homeless in this country are, are vets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we make a promise to them to take care of them. Um, and so this is a guy who didn't want to be homeless, didn't have any options. And so he started selling drugs, drugs that are now not a crime. Mm-hmm. And he's doing life in prison. So what, what can your organization do? What are, are you guys making appeals for them or... Yeah, right now we're in the process of getting appeals from the different districts of court, and um, it's, uh, we're in the Supreme Court circuit right now, and um, one of our lawyers, Cormac Boyle, is uh, on the case, and he's actively going, uh, defending him um, against prosecution that thinks that he should be put away for life with no real like justification other than their egos to, to, to feel it. I can't, in this day and age, I can't imagine being a, a prosecuting attorney and not just cracking up laughing in the courtroom at the shit I'm saying. That this man needs to spend quite possibly as much time as he's already been alive, again, behind bars, uh, you know, on the state's dime, on all of our taxpayers' money for a fucking joint. Yeah. And, as, you know, I've seen his rap sheet and he distributed minor amounts of cocaine. I think there was some burglary or robbery. Um, this dude wasn't shooting people in, the, you know, the street. This guy this was not a machete, machete murderer. Like, this is a troubled man. Uh, all right. Well, on, on that note, we're going to take a little break. We're going to be back here on the Defund the Police podcast. Uh, I am Seamus Harvey here with Sinjin Sison. And we're back 
on the Defund the Police podcast. I am James Harvey here in studio with my friend uh, Sinjin Sison. I'm talking about how fucked up the prison system is here. And, you know, if you're just joining for some reason, and you're like, well, the prison system, that's not the police. This is the Defund the Police podcast. It is the same shit. It is the same shit. It is institutional violence and racism. It is the school-to-prison pipeline. It is us paying people to make sure that a disproportionate part of the population fills these prisons at an exorbitant rate that we pay to where, you know, Prison populations are, are pretty similar to what the you know the distribution was on in work camps during slavery today, you know, and we're 170 years past that. Maybe not quite that much. My math's a little bad, it's late. But alright, so yeah. Let's oh, yeah, so new fact um, that I learned fairly recently. I would have assumed that we always had a prison system they've always been with us and you know the way that all the laws are written you would have thought this would have been something that's been around with us forever uh, we just had a, you know have to have had a state system of if you do x you spend y amount of years in prison well no uh we didn't actually ha- we had some some prisons they weren't very organized we didn't have a state prison system until after the emancipation proclamation so why why would that be what would be the big impetus to make sure that we had an organized institutional prison after freeing, quote unquote, all of the black slaves in the South? Yeah, just sit with that. And let's keep talking about fucked up prisons in Louisiana. So um, Derek Harris, uh, in prison for life, for essentially a little bit more than half of a gram of marijuana, like one, one, like a, a, like a pin joint, like not a good, like a, not a fatty, you know, <laughs> like a, a nothing amount of marijuana, which is decriminalized here in Louisiana, and he is still in prison. Tell me more about this ratchet prison system that we have here. Well, I could go into a lot of things. Uh, some active things that are going on are as the medical lawsuit uh, against uh, the Louisiana State Penitentiary, which is essentially one at this point where it's just showing the the people in prison and their experiences with the treatment, such as um, there's a person that we support who is quadriplegic, who has diabetes. and But they're not in prison. They are in prison. They are... Hold on. Fuck. They're quadriplegic. They have no limbs. Mm -hmm. No, oh, they're paralyzed from um, the C3 and C4 vertebrae. Okay, they have no movement in their limbs. Mm -hmm. And they're... What the fuck is the point of that? Um, you tell... How How do you have a quadriplegic prisoner? Like, how does that even work? Um, well, unfortunately for, um, for this man... He became quadriplegic while in prison, while um, I believe he was playing a sport, sports game. And so he's just been there since he was a teenager, and now 
he's an, an older gentleman now. The, this concept, uh, you're going to hear me say punitive uh, enforcement or punitive adjudication. That is, um, do something wrong, I'm going to hit you with a stick. And that is what we do in this country is that you're supposed to be good because if you don't, I'm going to fuck you up. And unfortunately, there are actually several portions of the population that we fuck up a lot more. Um, people that aren't white. But this is, this is cruelty. You know, this, this is the kind of shit that these are war crimes. And here in good old Louisiana... So is, uh, is this guy in Angola? Where is he at? He's in the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola. So uh, if you would, for our folks at home, please describe the, what Angola is like. So Angola, if for uh, people who haven't been, it's essentially this massive plot of land in um, a little bit north, um, a couple hours north of New Orleans. And it essentially is just this big plantation filled with different camps or prisons where um, a large amount of prisoners live in and are left to the discretion of whoever works there, um, however you want to... It's a work camp. Essentially, it's a work camp. Yeah, it it looks uh, like, as you were saying, just like it's essentially slavery. And under the 13th... It's not essentially slavery. It is, it is fucking slavery. Yeah. And it's not... You know, in other parts of the country... Um, and I don't know if this is better or worse, but they at least try to pretend like it's better. This is legitimately ex-plantation in one of the largest slave-owning states in the country, still running slaves, still slaving them, on a plantation. Yeah, because you have... Your tax dollars at work. Aren't you happy? Yeah. You have correctional officers literally on horseback following prisoners to their to their jobs that they have to work for cents an hour um, just to get, like, food, like, a snack that they want. Or it's just... Yeah, I had a, I had a friend um, who went to prison. Oh, it's been a while now. Maybe... 15 years ago and it was you know essentially for drug dealing but they didn't actually get him on drugs they got him on conspiracy because they can always get you on conspiracy and uh conspiracy is just like talking about with intent committing a crime um it's a lot easier to prove than you know actual crime anyway so he was in a minimum security facility and he was so happy and i remember in a letter that he wrote me because he got a, a phone operator job like he got to there's some bullshit like you know those like mailer catalogs used to be a big thing you like get the catalog and call in and buy your useless garbage and get it mailed to you well he was one of those people so you were you know you're calling into literally into a federal prison and an inmate would help you get your useless shit and he was so happy because his job paid 93 cents an hour and that was essentially a fortune Mm-hmm. Uh, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. I have, I 
have a big mouth. Like yeah, to talk no a lot. Words. Anyway, continue. Tell us more about uh, prison system, what you guys are up to, all that. Um, so uh, one of the things that we're act uh, that the organization I'm part of actively is working on is the response to the COVID nineteen situation in in prisons and how delayed and how unthought out the response was by the Department of Corrections and that they essentially anyone they didn't have tests ready they didn't have medical staff ready to accommodate this new influx of people that were getting the coronavirus and and people who were maybe just showing signs and just threw them all in a, a part of the prison tried quarantining them and I believe now the number of people who have had corona in the prison population is like 40%. And you have these men and women who are right, they're on top of each other um, most of the time. And it's hard when you don't have like a facility for people to like, like sanitize, like wash their hands, like stay clean. And especially if you have like given times of the day when people can, it's, it's a, it's a breeding ground to perpe like perpetuate the coronavirus. And so if, if you're not keeping score because it is a morbid subject and I stopped looking at the numbers for a while just because it was making me ill, but we're at around 160,000 dead in the US right now mm -hmm. from COVID. Um, so right now, this year, uh, we're talking about 16 times more people than died in both the Iraq and the Afghanistan war. We had, we've now had 16 times that from a virus and a significantly disproportionate number of those people are prisoners mm -hmm. and a significantly disproportionate number of prisoners are African-Americans. That hold true in Louisiana as well? Yes. Uh, it's, it's, um, there's a study that, um, that was done in Cato Parish that showed the disparity of the racial disparity of sentencing between, um, people of color and people who are white, uh, and that people of color got much larger sentences than, um, people who are white in that parish at a largely disproportionate rate. And that is universal across the whole country. Um, I saw the most egregious example that I've seen so far is I saw, I'll put it the right one in the show notes. I wanna say it was in Ohio, maybe it was Indiana, but there was a, a small protest in a smaller town and there were not a lot, maybe like six, 10 protesters at an intersection and they were blocking a truck and the owner of the truck was just super aggro, angry white dude literally got out of the truck and pointed a pistol in this girl's face that was just protesting. You know, she wasn't doing it in the truck. She's just there with a sign and pointed a pistol in her face, middle of the intersection. And there were two cops right there. Like they're literally in the video. You see two cops and this guy with the gun in a girl's face. And the cops do nothing. And then they, like all of the protesters literally have to yell at the cop, hey, guy with gun. 
And then they saunter over, and the guy gets back in his car, and he puts his gun away, but, you know, he's already had it out and threatened people with it. And the cop literally just, like, motions for him to leave. Like, it's just like, hey, just, you, need to, you need to get out of here now. And so he literally threatened people with a gun in their face. And I know of at least, at least one, maybe two, incidents where a African-American was pulled over by the police and in accordance with what he's supposed to fucking do, said, hello, I am licensed to, uh, to carry a concealed weapon. There is a weapon in the car, but I have a license for it. And the cop got angsty and killed him. So that's a disparity that ends in death right there, which is that if you are black in this country, you can do everything that you're supposed to do have all the proper paperwork and licensing and just get killed. But you could be white and literally wave a gun in you know, a little white girl's face in front of cops and just get a, I don't even know that he got a warning at the time. Now, um, the internet did lambast that police department so bad that they actually went and found the guy afterwards and they did arrest him. Uh, but you know, they didn't murder him. So that's disparity. And so what you're talking about with this, you know, disproportionate number of prisoners fucking getting COVID and a disproportionate number of prisoners being the ones that are dying from COVID. That's the thing that so many people don't get when they're just like, ah, you know, cops aren't, it's not that, that big of a deal. You know, yeah, it's a little, it's a little racist, a little prejudice, but this, this is a little bit, a little bit. It is a death by a thousand paper cuts. It is not any one thing. It is that in aggregate, all of this adds up to massive institutionalized racism and that every one of those little grains of sand pushing off the edge gets a little bit closer to an event that because of this systemic institutional racism has a significantly higher chance of ending in fatality for African-Americans in this country. And so right now, it's not just murderers and rapists and kidnappers that are dying in jails. It is people with 0.69 grams of marijuana doing life. Or people that got arrested for stealing food during Katrina. And that's it. Is that right now, there are several, you know, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure book. But all the adventure, like the roads are fucking shit and end in death. But there is. There's so many paths that for, you know, any white person, very few of the same paths would lead to fatality. But there are so many things that end in death. And that is why, that's, that's why this podcast is here. That is why there are thousands of people in the streets demanding change. And I know you got to go. Um, just closing thoughts here. Punitive enforcement doesn't work. The, the threat that if you do this, I'm going to punish you, um, that works on children for a little while. Uh, like, I used to get spanked, and I hated it when I was young. And then when I grew up and realized that I could do anything I wanted to, as long as I could just take the hit from my dad, then I didn't give a fuck. Then I was a real asshole. Because that's not how you improve anything. We, 
and all of these people are like, you can't defund the police. Blue lives matter. Like, these are cops are back to blue. All of that, like, they are ignoring the fact that this shit doesn't work. That it's, oh, we are spending all of this money. We are killing all of these people. Cops are literally responsible for killing over a thousand Americans a year. A year. Every year. And, you know, we're picking up the bill for that. For a system that doesn't work. You know, we can even leave the racism and the violence out of it. It just doesn't work. But we know things that do work. Supporting communities works. Providing social service, mental health, education, nutrition, shelter. You know, all this crazy confusing things. Like if you have a place to sleep at night, you might, you know, be less likely to commit a crime. And that... So defund the police is about it's about let's take money from this punitive enforcement and put it into systems and programs that we know actually help the problem supporting communities and not policing them i super monopolize this interview time but thank you so much sinjin for being here um i will learn how to interview guests better but thank mm -hmm. you for being my guinea pig no problem all right, and thank you so much for all the work that you're doing with the prisoners here in Louisiana because they don't have a lot of friends. Yeah. But uh, it's really beautiful what you guys are doing. Yeah, can I leave one like closing word just Absolutely. to like, reflect what you said? You get the class words. Is that like, we were, grew up on this punitive system and it's come so bad that the United States has 5% of the world population but houses 25% of the prisoners of the world. Um, and it's unfortunate that we think um, that punishment is going to help help people, but it's simple behaviorism, and we learn that punishment only reduces that behavior, but it doesn't teach people any new or alternative behavior. Yeah, and it's just going to keep recycling until we change our system. So that's it. We're just we're literally just punishing ourselves, and disproportionately punishing those of us that are black yeah. or not white. Sanjay, thank you so much. Thank you. Everybody, I am Seamus Harvey. This has been the Defund the Police podcast.